Good afternoon. Very warm welcome. Is everyone sitting, sitting comfortably? I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. And I'm really, really pleased that we are uh, all here today to launch this uh, collection of essays on has devolution worked, 20 years of it, put together by Akash Pound, our senior fellow who specializes in this, and Sam McGrory, our publications editor, who has plunged into the uh, debate with the authors here. We decided to do this um, really some time ago and decided <coughs> that we were going to spend quite a bit of this year looking at what to make of 20 years of devolution, one of the biggest experiments, if you like, but I'm not implying it's temporary, one of the, the biggest changes in government that the UK has brought on itself. And we wanted to get a range of voices necessarily because of the subject and to look at really what, what it has done to some of the, whether it has satisfied the very high ambitions at the beginning, those ambitions articulated in this uh, uh, booklet by Tony Blair, one of the architects of it who we talked to at the beginning. Those were ambitions for uh, political expression and, and for political representation, people feeling that people locally were uh, understanding them. Um, it was also economic aspirations, the, the famous uh, devolution dividend, whether that would come through. And um, generally turning, turning these questions around like a Rubik's Cube, whether the UK could be made to work better in some sense. Well, we've, we've had an immensely interesting time doing it. This is not the end of our devolution work at all. If anything, Brexit has raised these questions. Uh, to the front in a very lively way, indeed urgent way, um, because the devolution settlement, of course, and this leaps out of pretty well every contribution here, the devolution settlement assumed that the UK would remain part of the European Union. That appears not likely to be the future at the moment. I'm saying nothing about next week or the next few months. Um, we've got a great panel here to discuss it. Akash is going to kick off with 10 minutes um, of presenting uh, our, our thoughts on this and some, some of his work. David Torrance, who's um, at, the, at the House of Commons Library, who uh, has written an essay on Scotland in this, who's going to talk about his, uh, his, his views. Rachel is going to talk on behalf of Ipsos Mori about the qu general questions of, of public trust, which um, you and your colleagues have been working so interestingly on and what devolution has done to those. And uh, Tony, uh, frequent member of, of, of panels on all kinds of subjects, mm. but in this particular uh, case is going to draw on his essay in this collection, which is on uh, particularly London and England issues and talk on those or respond uh, to what the others have said as he feels the spirit on him. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. We've got an hour and a quarter, so we will press on. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Akash. Thanks, Lorna. Thank you, everyone, for, for, for joining us. Um, so I was also just uh, reflecting on the, the genesis uh, of this, this project and, and, and this report, and uh, yeah, it was re recalling late last year, I think it was, we were discussing our 2019 uh, devolution program, what we might do to mark the 20th anniversary of devolution, and uh, I remember Bronwyn's repeated challenge to, to me and colleagues was, well, what are we going to be able to say at the end of all this about the, the success of devolution, whether it's worked? Um, and that led to a conversation about what exactly that would mean. How would you go about answering that question? And, and we quickly realized that there's no single 
uh, metric you could use to, to, to assess the, the success or otherwise um, of such a complex set of reforms because of the fact that there's a very different story in each part of the UK and because devolution has been advocated for a range of, of different reasons by different people at different times. And that led really to, to the idea for this collection, um, which, as Bronwyn <coughs> mentioned, it, it, it entails uh, us having commissioned 10 essays, um, each of which addresses a yes-no question um, about whether as devolution has succeeded in some particular respect. We didn't really expect uh, the authors to come down with a very clear yes or no, but we, we, we tried to get them to, uh, to, to stick to the question as closely as possible. And I'd um, like to thank all the authors, several of whom are here today, as well as those on the panel, for sticking to the brief and more or less sticking to the deadlines um, along, along the way. Um, thanks also to Bronwyn and my co-editor Sam in the audience um, and also to the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust who contributed to our work. Um, so the structure of the collection, uh, if you've picked up a copy you might already have had a look at this, um, is um, quite uh, simple, hopefully symmetrical. So part one includes five essays on the story of devolution in each part of the UK. So the three devolved nations, and then there's two essays on, uh, on England as well, and one of them on London, Tony will be, will be speaking to. Um, and then the second half of the collection um, is organized more thematically, and there are essays there on the impact of devolution, on the economy, on uh, diversity in politics, on the constitution as a whole, on trust in politics, as Rachel will discuss, and on uh, policy innovation. Um, and then there's also the interview with Tony Blair and the overview by Bronwyn and me at the start. And what we find from the, from the collection as a whole is that devolution's biggest success has been to, to enhance the legitimacy of the political system in those places where it has been uh, <laughs> done properly, we might say, by giving people a sense of being governed close to home uh, by institutions that better reflect their sense of identity and, uh, and, and political community. So that's particularly the case in Scotland and Wales, where the legitimacy of the old, centralised, majoritarian UK constitution um, had been eroded during the years before 1997. So James Mitchell, in his uh, chapter on, on the Constitution at the end of this volume, he, as he puts it, what was being called into question by supporters of devolution were the rules of the game, the very Constitution itself, rather than the result. In Wales, uh, similarly, Gerald Holtham, who I think is, is here today, uh, similarly notes that the case for devolution rested, at least in part, on the need to restore democracy to a form of government that had acquired a colonial aspect. And so devolution was designed to close this democratic deficit. And to a large extent, we think it can be said to have succeeded. The debate since 99 has predominantly been about how to strengthen, how to enhance devolution, not whether to turn back the clock. And as we will hear, uh, the devolved institutions do tend to be more trusted uh, than Westminster and also than uh, local councils in, in, in Scotland, certainly at least, and I, and I believe in Wales too. Um, Northern Ireland, 
of course, rather different context, but there too, devolution was part of the answer to, well, actually a much more profound uh, legitimacy crisis, where the entire presence of the British state on the island of Ireland was regarded as, as illegitimate by a large part of the population there. Um, in the event, of course, power sharing in Belfast has, has stumbled from one crisis to the next with sort of brief periods of, 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 of stability. There's one illustrated <laughs> on the wall here, in fact, uh, one of the more surprising coalitions that, that worked for a while. Um, but of course, there's been no devolved rule there for uh, two and a half years now. Um, but I think what we find is that despite its failures in practice, uh, devolution and power sharing continue to be the, uh, the preferred form of government in Northern Ireland. I mean, the data from research such as the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey consistently finds that devolution is the most popular option, far ahead of either reunification with the Republic or direct rule from Westminster. Of course, whether that can be sustained um, if Northern Ireland drifts on into the, into the medium long term without devolved rule and particularly in the context possibly of a, uh, a destabilising Brexit uh, remains to be seen. Um, but that has been the pattern so far. We also show that alongside the democratic arguments for devolution, there is the, the case made by many at the outset that devolution should or ought to lead to uh, improvements in terms of policy, better policy decisions, more reflective of local conditions and so on. And several chapters in the book consider whether this has happened. Is there evidence of a, of a devolution dividend in uh, public service performance in the economy? Um, and I think it's fair to say that the, that the picture's, picture's mixed. There's some interesting examples of, of good practice, of successes, but overall a sense that devolution has not, at least not yet, had a truly transformational impact on the way that the devolved territories are, are governed. So uh, there's a chapter, for example, by Pippa Coots, who I think is here today, um, on, on, on this theme of policy innovation, and, and, and that chapter highlights a number of very eye-catching, impressive innovations, the opt-out uh, organ donation scheme in Wales, the public smoking ban in Scotland. These are both uh, complex policies that were implemented successfully and then transferred elsewhere in the UK. Um, but I think we also find that devolution has not really led to a new culture of systematic sharing of evidence and learning between the nations about what works best, what we might call the policy laboratory. And I think there's, there's probably more, uh, more to be done to, to, to sort of reach that ideal. Um, contributors also uh, conclude, including David might speak about this, that often uh, the devolved governments have opted for popular but expensive policies that might help to, or might have helped to differentiate them from Westminster to solidify their legitimacy in the eyes of the public, but might be unaffordable in the long run. And there has perhaps been less focus on public service reform uh, and performance, for instance, in, in education and, and healthcare. Um, although some, some evidence that, that there's been some change in that respect in, in more recent years under the pressures of austerity. Then we come to England, which again is, uh, of course, a very different story. Um, so, as we all know, there's been no, uh, there's been no attempt to create devolution to England as a whole. Instead, we've seen successive attempts to create devolved bodies at the city or regional level. 
Um, I think what we find in the chapters on, on this theme is that partly due to the absence of those strong identities at the regional level, um, devolution has struggled to take root. There's been no burning legitimacy crisis or uh, bottom-up pressure for reform in the way we saw in the devolved nation. So instead, discussed by Mark Sanford in his chapter, Mark's here today, we've seen uh, successive technocratic and top-down devolution initiatives, such as the most recent ones to Metro Mayors um, and Combined Authorities. And, and the Metro Mayors perhaps have started to show they can make a difference, but their powers are quite constrained, often with ring-fenced budgets and so on, and they do appear vulnerable still to shifting political currents at Westminster. Um, within England, London is the big exception, and Tony makes a strong case, which I'll, I'll let him put to you, for why London is an exception and has been, devolution to London has been much more of a success story. Finally then, our collection considers the effect that devolution has had on the constitution as a whole. I think it's clear that devolution is still a work in progress, so the implications for the constitution are still working their way through the system. Tony Blair talked about that in his interview. He said, 20 years is not long in a new constitutional settlement. I don't think we can judge devolution properly, probably for many decades. Um, and that was already the case before 2016, which has, of course, uh, brought about new uncertainty as a result of the EU referendum result. Brexit now hangs over all debates about the future of devolution and the union, and I think, to some extent, threatens to undo some of the achievement of devolution of having rebuilt the legitimacy of the political system um, in, in the devolved parts of the UK. What Brexit has done is to expose an underlying uh, gulf, perhaps, in how the Constitution is understood in different parts of the UK, um, as reflected most clearly um, during the passage of the EU Withdrawal Act last year. So that was regarded as a perfectly legitimate exercise of parliamentary sovereignty by Westminster, <coughs> passing that bill without Scottish agreement. But in Edinburgh and in Cardiff too, actually, it was seen as contrary to very important convention that such legislation should be made only with devolved consent. Um, so that, I think, is a big, uh, big moment in the, in the UK territorial constitution whose, whose implications uh, are still to be fully recognised. Brexit poses a number of other questions about future of devolution too, such as well, how should the different governments work together uh, to replace EU law, to protect the UK internal market, for example? How should EU funding in the devolved nations be replaced? There's questions about uh, self-determination. Uh, should the Scottish Parliament uh, be allowed to? Should it have the right to hold a second independence referendum? That's obviously a live question. And does the vote for Brexit also reflect the fact that devolution to the other nations created a new democratic deficit in England? In which case, how should that be addressed going forward? And so we conclude that while devolution has brought benefits to parts of the UK, the devolved territories of the UK, it has not created a stable settlement for the country as a whole, founded on shared principles about how power and resources are distributed and how Westminster and the devolved bodies should relate to one another and work with one another. And as the UK moves on, Finally, one assumes from Brexit over the coming months, trying to find agreement on these questions will be the biggest, one of the biggest challenges um, the UK faces. And we hope that our collection 
will help to inform the debate about how those challenges can best be addressed. Thank you. Akash, thanks very much indeed. You've got lots, lots of things out, uh, out there. What is the success? What is failure? Where are we in devolution? Is it a process leading towards independence uh, or is it satisfied the uh, impulses and uh, dis discontents that, uh, that led to its, its uh, creation? Uh, David's going to take us into uh, his thinking on Scotland first. I, uh, there's going to be a lot of questions. I'm going I'm to press on, but I may not entirely resist the the opportunity to fire individual ones at you. Uh, David. Um, I'm old enough to remember when devolution events like this attracted, you were lucky if they attracted a dozen people, so it's, it's <laughs> impressive to see uh, so many of you here. Um, not so much my views, uh, I work at the House of Commons Library, uh, views were surgically removed about a, a year ago, but what I've attempted to do in this chapter is assess uh, some of the standard expectations of, of devolution <laughs> Uh, against what has actually happened. Uh, so I take uh, as a starting point something John Curtis, sorry, Sir John Curtis wrote on the 10th anniversary of, of devolution where he summarized the three objectives and goals of devolution as one, improving economic and policy performance, two, improving political representation, accountability and engagement, uh, and three, finally, strengthening the union between Scotland and England. So taking the, the first one, um, there was a lot of rhetoric uh, in 97, 98, 99, including from Donald Dewar, the then Secretary of State, that somehow just the very act of devolving power would, would stimulate the Scottish economy and lead to, to better uh, policy outcomes. Actually, the, the Scotland Act 1998 uh, didn't devolve very many economic competencies to, to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, there was a very modest thing called the Scottish Variable Rate, which would have allowed uh, Parliament to vary the basic rate of income tax up or down by a penny. Certain parties advocated that, the SNP in 99, the Scottish Liberal Democrats later on, but it was never used by any uh, party uh, in government. Until very recently, all parties have proved quite conservative in terms of exercising uh, fiscal powers, especially uh, more recent uh, devolved tax levers. Also, the economic backdrop meant that this wasn't really an issue for the first 10 years. Uh, until the great financial crash, uh, the block grant uh, generally increased. There were, of course, Barnet consequentials uh, flowing north, uh, and economic confidence was generally high. Of course, that's changed in, in the last decade. Um, in terms of policy, uh, and Akash touched on this, uh, devolution certainly meant policy divergence uh, that happened almost immediately, uh, tuition fees or upfront tuition fees were abolished. Um, a bit later, Henry MacLeish, as first minister, introduced free personal care uh, for the elderly, something that still hasn't happened uh, anywhere else uh, on, on the mainland. Um, whether or not uh, different policies, diverse policies, are, are better policies is obviously a political question I can't comment on. Uh, but Professor James Mitchell, uh, has stated the view, and, and other academics and commentators agree with this, that the focus as a result has, has been and remains to, to some degree more on inputs than outputs. So tuition fees would be a good example of this. Uh, there, there was a, a widespread view uh, from the initial Labour Lib Dem coalition and certainly from the SNP later on that uh, the tuition fee policy in England 
uh, could not exist in Scotland and various changes were made to that. But equally, there is a lot of evidence that in terms of outputs, uh, certainly access from, from poorer socioeconomic groups uh, is, is somewhat better in England where there are um, tuition fees than in Scotland. Um, there was one attempt at a deeper piece of public policy reform. The, the Christie Commission was appointed by Alex Salmond uh, a few years ago, but its report uh, has, has gathered dust since that, that has not really been implemented. On the second, uh, I think the record has been more positive. That is improving political representation, accountability, uh, and engagement. Uh, the new politics dictated that the Scottish Parliament was going to be full of, of sort of apolitical uh, people from various backgrounds, business, the arts, and so on. That, that certainly didn't happen. But the electoral system in place meant that the parties had to work together. Uh, only in one term, 2011 to 2016, when you had an overall majority, was that not the case. Uh, so you had a Labour Lib Dem coalition for a couple of terms. Uh, after 2007, with, when there was a minority government with the SNP, they worked, uh, curiously, some might say, with the Conservatives. And more recently, the SNP have had a relationship with, with the Green Party. And I think a strong argument could be made that those first two coalitions were certainly smoother, uh, one might say, than, than the UK coalition a bit later on. Uh, in terms of LGBT gender representation, I think there's arguably a good record. Uh, single transfer of a vote for local government in Scotland is, a, is an under-acknowledged uh, reform, uh, I think, and certainly varied representation a lot more across uh, city councils in Scotland where Labour had dominated for a very long time. Um, on the other hand, Holyrood, which was set up to be not like Westminster, I think to some degree has become more like Westminster uh, over time. It didn't break fundamentally with the executive legislature model, and also, First Minister's questions is a, is a good microcosm of that. Initially, the, the intention was not to have anything like Prime Minister's questions, uh, but over time, pressure from, from MSPs, pressure from the media, uh, meant that the Scottish Parliament moved uh, towards that system. Uh, and you know, I leave it to your own judgment, but if you, if you tune into FMQs and Prime Minister's questions, there is not really uh, a, a major difference in terms of decibel uh, levels. Committees, a lot of academics think the committees which were uh, supposed to be a sort of major part of, of the evolution of Scotland have disappointed and certainly several attempts by um, presiding officers from various political backgrounds have not really uh, moved anywhere. Um, as Akash said, Scottish Parliament is consistently more trusted than Westminster but interestingly turnout doesn't reflect that. Mm. Um, at every uh, election mm. in Scotland since 1999, it, it's been under the, the average turnout for, for, for Westminster elections in Scotland. Obviously, the independence <laughs> referendum is a check on that, 80, around 85%, a remarkable level. And also, and I, this is often ignored in, in England, I think, the, the, the rise in SNP membership, which is, has you know, outstripped uh, comparatively anything in, in any of the, the UK parties and, and remains very high. And so finally, on the third point, um, the strengthening the union between Scotland and England, the two dominant uh, sort of theories in that respect were George Robertson, who said that devolution would kill uh, independent stone dead, and ta the late Tamdiel, who said that uh, devolution would constitute a, a slippery slope towards separation 
uh, with no, uh, or a motorway with no exits. I think he used a couple of formulations. Um, arguably, neither of those has, has, really, has really transpired. Um, it, initially, it looked as if the evolution had uh, dampened uh, the SNP and, uh, and demands for independence, but of course, after 2007, that was the harder argument to make. So the slope wasn't that slippery. And importantly, academic analysis shows that the SNP's <laughs> election wins in 2007 and 2011 uh, were not really about independence. They, they were more about the party, the program, and perceived levels of, of competence. But as John Curtis has pointed out elsewhere, just the very fact a Scottish Parliament existed could be said to pr provide a, a context, an arena in which a, a party uh, promoting greater self-government would, would naturally uh, do well. And Brexit uh, feeds into that. I mean, I think without devolution, had Brexit happened, there would have still been a, a sort of kickback, if you like, in Scotland Wales and Northern Ireland, especially with differential voting. But the existence of the Scottish Parliament uh, provides an instit institutional uh, forum uh, for that. And of course, it has allowed the Scottish Government to, to set out uh, different propositions uh, and to mm. advance their ultimate goal of independence on, on that basis. Um, and finally, just to, to note an iron, I think, uh, the arguments I mentioned for devolution mm -hmm. And I remember them well as, a, as an undergraduate at Aberdeen University uh, until 1999, <coughs> was that devolution would be a, a sort of constitutional prophylactic against uh, Tory governments and unpopular policies. It would protect a distinctly Scottish social, democ social democratic mm -hmm. ethos. Uh, it would promote economic growth and also address the democratic deficit. Uh, ironically and strikingly, I think, uh, those have become most of the arguments for independence uh, as positive five years ago uh, and to this day. David, thank you very much in, indeed, uh, which has taken us right to that key point of, of where are we on this, um, uh, where are the, in, in all these possible futures of devolution, where might be, we be heading? Um, let's, let's, uh, let, let's press right on, because I want to hear what Rachel and her uh, colleagues have been working on. And, and Rachel, we were talking, and. and uh, ben Page has written in this, this volume about uh, the questions of public trust and what devolution has done to that. What, what, what is your thinking on this? Well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me, especially given as, uh, unlike the other people on the panel, I didn't actually write the chapter that's appearing in the book. Yes, but, um, but, we, we, we worked on it. But I have, I have, yes, uh, a background in looking at public attitudes to devolution, yeah. which is why I'm here, here representing Ben and Emily. Um, their chapter obviously asked whether devolution did enhance public trust in the political system. I think before I answer the question, I think it, it's just worth reflecting that there are two main reasons why that matters. First, uh, probably everyone in this room would agree that, that trust does matter. A degree of scepticism about the system and about our politicians might be fine, but if we lose trust altogether, then at best we stop voting in elections, at worst we stop following any laws and, and chaos ensues. Um, but second, um, and I think this is, has been alluded to already, devolution was meant to restore public trust. All the grand claims that were made by its architects about renewal of democracy really have at their, their heart the idea that it would restore trust between government and the governed. Um, so, so, so it matters from that point of view as well. Um, Akash said that the questions had been framed as, as yes, no questions, but you weren't necessarily expecting a straightforward answer. And predictably, I think the answer to this question as to whether devolution has enhanced public trust is, it depends. It depends on which bits of the political system you're looking at in particular. 
and it also depends on where in the UK you're looking. Um, it probably also depends a bit on what you mean by trust and exactly how you measure it, but I'm going to gloss over that slightly. Um, if you are interested in that, I would just flag that, that Ipsos Mori has a, has a book on trust in a global context in government and in each other and all sorts of other things. If anyone's particularly interested in trust, that's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, so as Akash said, the key, key aim of devolution really was to, to create institutions that were closer to the people they were meant to serve, that would be better attuned to their needs, understand them better, and therefore would, would, would attract high levels of trust. And the data for Scotland and Wales, at least, suggests that devolution has really been pretty successful on that, on that measure. So in 2017, the Scottish Social Attitude Survey asked people whether they thought that um, the Scottish Government could be trusted to act in Scotland's best interests. And 61% of people said yes, they could be trusted just about always or most of the time, which is really a, a very high level of trust, although it's not actually the highest level recorded by the survey, which we can maybe touch on in discussion. Um, and the Welsh election study has showed that trust in the Welsh Government is, enjoys similarly high levels. It's around 66%, I think. Um, but if, if Westminster was also meant to gain some kind of trust dividend from devolution, from showing that it had listened to the appetite um, for, for government, government closer to home, then uh, on, that, on that measure it certainly hasn't delivered. So Scottish Social Attitudes Survey asked the same question about whether you trust the UK government to act in Scotland's best interest. So the figure was 61% for the Scottish government. For the UK government, it's sitting at 21%. So there's really a massive gap in trust in those two institutions. Um, that trust gap isn't recent, it's not uh, something that followed the election of the SNP in 2007 or, or Brexit or anything like that, it's been apparent all the way through since, since 1999 when the questions were first asked. Um, and again, there is a similar gap apparent in, in Wales, so the Welsh Government is much more likely to be trusted by people in Wales than is the UK Government. Um, that, that finding, I guess, doesn't necessarily imply that trust in the UK government has fallen since devolution. Unfortunately, there isn't really a very clear pre-devolution measure for Scotland and Wales in uh, specifically, but at Britain-wide level, we know from a very long-standing Ipsos Mori series, um, looking at trust in politicians to, to tell the truth, that trust in politicians has been rubbish for ages. It's hovered around the 20% mark since 1983 when, when it's, it was first asked. It's bounced up and down a tiny bit, but to be honest, the line is pretty flat. Um, but what is clear, clear is that if devolution um, has created new institutions that are trusted, it's done nothing to enhance existing low levels of trust in the UK government among the Scottish and Welsh public. I also said that the answer to the question depends on where in the UK you look, and the picture in Northern Ireland is, is not the same, perhaps predictably. Um, it did look more similar in 2007, so just after the, the devolution had been restored, um, the Northern Irish Life, Life and Times survey asked, asked the equivalent question from the Northern Ireland Assembly, and trust was pretty high, it was about 60% then. But then by 2015, um, which is when it was last asked, it had more or less halved to around 32%, so a massive decline. Um, the question hasn't been asked since, probably for obvious reasons. I'm not sure how you would, you would answer it at the moment. Um, but I, you can speculate that it's not likely to have improved. Um, and I think the findings for Northern Ireland do stand as a warning to the Scottish and Welsh Government that you, you can't take high levels of trust in devolved institutions for granted. It's not a, it's not a given. 
Given the fact that trust in the Scottish Government and Welsh Government is much higher than trust in the UK Government, you might um, expect that our levels of trust in our local councils would be even higher on the basis that they are the, the, the level of government that is, is closest to us. And indeed, if you just looked at England, you, you might well conclude that. Um, so particularly for, for London, Ipsos Mori recently did a survey of Londoners, and um, local councils were the bodies that were most trusted to make decisions about services, um, and similar data from elsewhere. But that doesn't seem to be the case in Scotland and Wales. So um, a similar question on trust, slightly different, which asked about trust to, uh, to make fair decisions. Um, people in Scotland and Wales put UK government bottom, um, Scot but Scottish and Welsh government top local councils go fall somewhere in the middle. Um, so trust doesn't necessarily increase with increased mm. geographic proximity. There seem to be some other things going on there as well, perhaps to do with identity, um, perceived competence, etc. So, in summary, um, has devolution enhanced public trust in the, the political in the political system? Um, in Scotland and Wales, it certainly succeeded in creating new parts of the political system that enjoy really very high levels of trust. Um, but the fluctuating figures for the Northern Irish Assembly show that that's, that trust is not something that can be taken for granted. Um, and devolution doesn't seem to have done anything to increase our levels of trust in other bits of the political system, and in particular in Westminster. Rachel, thanks very much indeed um, for that. And uh, th th that last point it seems to me is often overlooked of what it's done to the existing and central institutions, not just to, to the new ones. Tony, do you, you, you want to pick up with your thoughts on sure. any of this, but also perhaps on, uh, which Akash uh, touched on right at the beginning, what this, how this should encourage us to think of England and of, uh, uh, of the cities? Okay. Well, um, first it's worth remembering that the London reforms of... Uh, 2000, so a year later actually than uh, uh, Scotland and Wales, were in part to replace the previously abolished GLC, but in part as a stepping stone to broader regional government reform in England. First thing obviously happened, but after the North East referendum in 2004, um, that's put uh, killed off regional devolution to England, actually creating intriguingly space where city regional uh, government has emerged, particularly in starting in Greater Manchester subsequently, then picked up by national government and spread marginally within England. I'll come back to that. So um, what of the system? Well, um, it was an unusual reform because it didn't just introduce regional government in the city region of England, but in the same time, the Americanized version of direct elect, directly elected uh, leader, the mayor, which was a big change at the time. Uh, we now have other mayors in other parts of not only big city, but other parts of England. It hasn't spread, hasn't become universal, but it has become more prevalent. So there were two reforms at once, really. Um, interestingly, the mayor been a fair amount of polling about the Mayor of London, uh, just heard reference to some of it, or at least to London. Actually, mayors have proved substantially more popular than national politicians, not a very high bar, but you know, they have. And uh, we've now learned, of course, it's just possible that you can be Mayor of London and become Prime Minister. We'll find out that, and I doubt if we do find it out, it'll be the only person ever to think it's possible. So, um, in the meantime, London's public services. Again, Akash made this point. Hard to know exactly what would have happened otherwise. 
and in the early days, the Mayor of London, under the Labour government, was given substantial amounts of money to, tr to do new things like introduce congestion charging. But if you look at things like the underground and the buses, all the indicators are they've improved since 2000. I mean, it's not to say that's because of the Mayor, but it could be because of the Mayor's lobbying powers. We have greater accountability for the police and fire than before. And I think with all of the you know, trying to assess what would have happened otherwise and the performance of these services run by the mayor or the number of homes built, um, you're always having to try to judge, is it because the mayor's a good lobbyist in getting money? Or is it because the mayor is good at government and these institutions have been more sharply, more accountably run by a figure that much closer and more obviously accountable at the local level than national government ministers running the equivalent services, which in some cases they were previously. I mean, London has always had, but has evolved a more distinctive voice and image, policies that would never have been pursued otherwise, congestion charging most obviously, uh, pushed through by a mayor in a way that no national politician has ever dared do. Interestingly, in Nottingham, they introduced on-street parking charging, sorry, off-street off -street parking charging, much easier for sub-national politicians to make these reforms than mm. those at the center. Um, you know, the ultra-low emission zone, the extension and development of the London overground, London cycle lanes, the whole range of things, many of them, but not all transport related. I think far, far more developed than <coughs> had, it's hard to prove it, but than had the mayor not existed. And of course, the other thing that uh, successive mayors have done have evolved a sort of global city image for London, a fascinatingly uh, thing that has more in common with New York or Toronto in many ways than with the rest of the United Kingdom, leading to knock-on consequences, I think, in the way the rest of the United Kingdom sees London. And the other thing it's worth saying is that, um, they, again, you can't be sure what the counterfactual would have been, but uh, London's economic growth since 2000 has been significantly faster than the UK as a whole. Now, again, we don't know whether that would have happened if there were no mayor and all these reforms and policies, particularly towards transport. Uh, and I suppose the worst you can say about as a sort of the, the difficulty of precisely attributing causality to the office of mayor and the GLA and its, uh, the city's performance is that uh, London is seen, if anything, as too successful within the United Kingdom. So at the very least, the arrival of the mayor and assembly in London didn't damage that sort of model. So just to come back to, to England, um, England remains an incredibly centralised country. Of course, we've seen combined authorities and directly elected mayors in a number of other cities and places that are not actually cities, leaving lots of England without these reforms, of course. Uh, Mark Sanford sitting here has written some excellent papers for the House of Commons Library on the patchwork quilt we now have for England. You know, but it's still the fact that, in England, central government sets virtually all taxes and the minutiae of uh, every detail of most public services is handled in Whitehall, as it is to some extent now in uh, Edinburgh and Cardiff and, and, and Belfast, but particularly Edinburgh and Cardiff, um, where there is a great deal of centralisation within those nations, as there is still in England, uh, answerable to the UK government. So I think uh, you know, what we've learned from all of this is that there's a significantly lo long, still a long way to go in England beyond even the modest reforms in London and now in Manchester uh, and Leeds and Liverpool, uh, sorry, not Leeds, Liverpool 
in other cities. And as a result of this, I think it's pretty clear that the voice element that having a mayor in London has given London is substantially missing in many parts of England, and most notably in those regions which have neither city mayors or any form of this kind of uh, devolved or partially devolved power. And I've used this example before. Just, you know, we sit in this room and others like it quite, quite rightly talking about Wales and Scotland, Northern Ireland, London, Day, day after day after day, we never talk about the East Midlands. Mm. East Midlands, who knows? Uh, it's badly underrepresented. I choose it, I don't come from the East Midlands, to it just as a, as, a, as, a, as a way of thinking about how underrepresented some parts of England are within a broader debate about the future of the United Kingdom, not only in terms of day-to-day -day policy, but longer-term issues such as Brexit and those sort of bigger ones that hit us from time to time. Thank you. Tony, thanks very much indeed. Um, okay, I want to pull, I, I want to just, how are we doing? We're doing uh, really well for time. Um, if there's anyone in the next door room who might want to ask a question imminently, we've got a couple of seats here in the front row. Um, otherwise we get people, which they're very welcome to do awkwardly, putting their head around the, uh, around the door. Um, we've been talking, it seems to me, largely about the political side of this. And if you went back, 20 years to the start of this, and you fished around for the argument against devolution. I, I'm thinking particularly of Wales, where the vote in favor was, was, was 50.3, very close. Mm -hmm. The kind of argument against would have been things like, um, it's gonna be really expensive, it's another layer of, of, of government for us to pay to, we're gonna get second-rate politicians um, who don't move on, who don't, are not fit for the national stage, and so on, and it seems to me uh, some, some of uh, those concerns, you, st you still hear them a bit, but much less as the trust figures are, uh, <coughs> are showing, as the support for the national, the, the Welsh government is showing, uh, some of that's faded. And we've been, we've been talking about the political domain and really about a lot of the successes of devolution, of making people feel better represented. Uh, and those figures have gone up. Uh, and as Rachel's reminded us, that doesn't mean that the uh, government of Westminster gets thanked in any way for, uh, for that, those, those, those figures of trust have not gone up. But what I'd like to just push on is where we're going from here and also about the, the economic side of this. Akash referred it to in the beginning of how public services have not fared so well in the devolved nations. Now there's a debate about whether you hold that at the um, other door of the elected governments or of devolution itself. David referred to how the governments have been quite conservative, small c, in their divergence uh, to the extent they're allowed on, um, on tax and, and, and fiscal policy. And I, I would like the, the feelings of the panel on where we go from here and whether there is pressure for more uh, economic divergence and whether that would be good for devolution or whether, as David suggested at one point, governments might have been making promises uh, that they won't actually be able to fulfill, but they haven't really been held to task for that because it all <coughs> still is clouded by the great centralized government uh, in Westminster. And I'd love, love people's thoughts on where from here, and particularly uh, are, are these devolved nations showing the kind of economic financial mm -hmm. maturity that, that they would need to take themselves significantly further forward. David, do you want to start? Now, Akash, I'm going to come to you at, at some point in this. <coughs> sure. Um, I think in Scotland, the obvious point is that the Constitution will remain front and centre of the, the debates. Obviously, the second independence referendum is a, is a live issue, not yeah. because the Scottish Government uh, 
once one. Um, and because of Brexit. And because of Brexit, that, that will be the central issue in the 2021 election coming up uh, and probably mm. well beyond that. However, at the same time, I think there are some interesting shifts. Uh, the recent fiscal reforms, and again, I think it, it's, it's under noticed uh, in, in London and England that mm. Scotland now has a, a largely different fiscal uh, setup with additional tax bans and different mm. rates and others. Modest, modest changes with, with modest revenue, but nevertheless, I think given the small C conservatism mm. uh, of much of the period, that's, that's a significant move, especially when the prevailing orthodoxy is that if you increase taxes, you lose votes. Mm. That will obviously be tested in 2021. But nevertheless, I think that's created a more, a maturer debate, dare I say, around uh, tax and spend in Scotland. And also there's been more of a shift on to what you might call bread and butter issues. Education, for example, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has made closing what's called the attainment gap in, in Scotland between richer and poorer students a central mm. issue. Uh, and there is a, a knock-on debate uh, around that. And also the First Minister has attempted to refashion the case for independence along what some uh, nationalists refer to as a sort of more realistic line. Mm. The Growth Commission, chaired by Andrew Wilson, which attempted to address the, the fiscal deficit uh, issue uh, and some mm. other sort of reorientation rhetorically and in terms of tactics. So I think there are there is broader movement there, but none of that distracts from the fact that independence is that's the main issue and is likely mm. to remain so. Mm. Akash, I mean, we, we were talking quite a lot about whether there was an economic dividend, one of the hopes for, devo uh, for devolution at the beginning, uh, and talked a lot with authors as we we're putting this together. Wh wh where do you feel the discussion is on this? I think, as David says, um, the process of, of fiscal devolution is, is, is actually still in its mm. very early stages. I mean, for most of the 20 years uh, since 99, the devolved bodies had a lot of control over yeah. deciding where to spend their money, but the overall amount of money uh, was set in Westminster, mm. um, and there weren't really very many um, fiscal levers at the, under the control of the, of the devolved institutions to, mm. to, through which they could try to um, you know, drive, drive economic uh, growth um, or indeed to, 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 to create a more progressive, mm. more redistributive system. And we have started to see some, just yeah, just in the last couple mm. of years, um, on income tax rates, mm. um, stamp duty, there's already sort of divergence on council tax as well. Mm. Um, Scotland in particular, Wales too, now has obviously a more limited array of tax powers, but um, on, again, on stamp duty, they have a very mm. different system. They haven't <coughs> opted to diverge on, on income tax yet, but um, there is that potential, and I think you know, that begins to, to, mm. to, to create a, a quite different system where, you know, mm. depending on decisions taken at the devolved level, mm. for which, yeah, there will have to be diff a different kind of debate where governments are held accountable, not just for, yeah, not for where they spend the money, but for what's the balance between taxation and, and spending. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and then we'll be able to sort of judge mm. the, the sort of economic impact of, of, of devolution uh, more effectively. I mean, the other thing that, to some extent will be changing anyway as a result of Brexit. Um, I referred to as how EU spending will, be, will be replaced. Okay. And obviously there's potentially quite a interesting um, 
maybe quite contentious um, d debate starting about structural funds and whether you know Westminster is going to create a shared prosperity fund um, or other similar sort of economic growth initiatives that operate across the whole UK or whether conversely this should be an opportunity to to give the, the devolved institutions greater um, gr greater spending power on in order so to whether, whether Westminster makes good the EU structural funds that, uh, that that have been flowing in and whether it retains control of that or gives it to the devolved. Yeah, well, there's a question about yeah. whether the overall amount of money is, yes. is replaced, but then also is this an opportunity by a Westminster government to to establish you know new UK-wide mm. institutions and systems or it, it, you know that, that do these do, do these funds get transferred to the devolved level? Mm. That's quite a big unanswered question. Yes, and as we've seen, I mean, governments often uh, recognise the opportunity, but like when they, when it comes down to it, to retain the control over the um, ability to redistribute money themselves. We have one essay in here by Leslie Budd of the Open University, which set out to look at whether we could pin down an economic dividend on the, the theory that if decisions are made locally, that they, they, they might be more efficient in some way and that it will help the economy. And the conclusion is that... Uh, it's really difficult, possibly, and the evidence would tilt that way rather than no, but because of so many big things that have happened, like the financial crisis uh, and now Brexit and then the, the, the uh, programme of public service uh, cuts after 2008, it is incredibly hard to pull out the economic evidence. Let me come to Rachel and, and um, Tony on this point, and then I'm going to come to questions, because I think there are going to be quite a few. But just your thoughts about... Um, whether you think this is right, that this has been a very politically themed discussion for 20 years, if you like, but that we need to know the economic piece um, mm. yes. in order to judge whether it's been successful. I think that's probably true. I'm not going to answer the question directly, mm. but it was just making me reflect on how the public views the Scottish economy and what they tend to attribute performance mm. of the Scottish economy to. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's always been this oddity um, since devolution in, in Scotland that if you ask people whether they think the economy has got stronger or weaker in the last 12 months, everyone who says it has got stronger tends to say that's because of Scottish government policies. Everyone who says it's got weaker says it's the UK government's fault. So, so but I was thinking in some ways, I mean, that, that presents a great opportunity for the Scottish government to kind of experiment with policy and do things mm. differently because if it goes a bit wrong, they might not get the blame anyway. Um, and actually, and, Unless and they win on independence, which yes, they well, get all the blame. Yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. But, it, uh, but that finding actually applies even on areas that have been devolved for many years, you know, even mm. on education and, and the NHS. So, you know, mm. there is space for, for those sort of kind of more bold experimentation, mm. I think. I mean, to answer the... the question, the political side, Nakash has hinted at this, went way further than the fiscal and financial mm. side of mm. devolution, uh, to the point that, you know, in a classically British way, there's still massive amounts of money flowing invisibly around the United Kingdom in a way that, for example, doesn't happen in the Eurozone. You know, that's why we're a, it is a United Kingdom in that sense. But even Scotland and Wales, which have been given some modest freedoms to set their own taxes, they're still, of course, sub, you know, subsidised through, mm. and you know, Ian is sitting here, you know, through the sort of 
Barnet formula, which itself is a weird artifact of history and has no relationship to relative need levels within the United Kingdom. And uh, so Scotland and Wales get tax freedoms, which city regions like <coughs> Greater Manchester or, um, well, Greater Manchester is a good example. Greater Manchester has a bigger economy than Wales, and yet the mayor of Greater Manchester has access to tiny pots of cash given by national government. Mm. So, uh, you know, and so it's not only infantilizing mm. the process, but it's completely and randomly inconsistent across the United Kingdom. Mm. And the mayor of London does have access to some, uh, oddly, has access to a property tax <coughs> and to fair income, which is a massive source, actually. Mm. So it, you know, none of this of this side of it has really been thought through at all. And one thing I do note from both Scotland and Wales is that as the idea of tax devolution has taken hold, each of those nations has begun to think about building up the tax base. Mm. Now that is a, a, an interesting step. Each of them has begun, positive step. Let's go to <laughs> questions, because I, I, not that I'm out of them, but I think there are gonna be loads here. Right, um, so start here and then I'll come over here and then there. Thank you. Uh, big chunk of Devo, uh, Jennifer Dixon from the Health Foundation. Big chunk of Devo spending is on the NHS. Mm. Um, I've been responsible over the last 20 years to examine the relative performance of the NHS in the four devolved, in, in, in the four UK countries. It's become more and more difficult to do that. Mm. Um, don't know whether that's purposeful, but it certainly mm. is, is much more difficult. And attempts to do that have become more and more difficult and uh, sensitive and with more aggression, actually. Mm. Um, so how do we get into a better place to get value for money for the UK taxpayer, I guess, is there, and, and, a, and a proper transparent analysis as to whether performance has improved on the health sector? Health, health indices can be compared. Healthcare performance is less easy. Mm. Is it the responsibility of the Treasury? Is it the UK Statistics Authority? Is it the relative audit bodies? How do we move forward? And can the situation be allowed to continue rather conveniently? Thank you very much. I'm going to take one more at the same time. So it's, it's come over here. But Jennifer, thank you very much indeed for that uh, essential question. Uh, Ian McLean, Oxford University and Barnet Nerd. Um, <laughs> you might say that the uh, counterfactual against has devolution worked is pretty pointless because we haven't had devolution. I mean, it's just come up in the last discussion and wasn't really in the initial presentations uh, that there was no serious uh, devolution of the power to tax, really, until the Scotland Act 2016, the effects of which, as David said, are too early to see and it's been overwhelmed by the constitutional issue in Scotland. And so um, I can't see any reason why a priori one should have expected economic performance to be affected mm -hmm. by devolution mm -hmm. because uh, until 2016 there were essentially no tax powers. Um, one other comment though while I've got the mic and that is uh, nobody has said much about Northern Ireland yet and I'd like the panel's views on the paradox that we're in at the moment uh, where um, the consociation of Northern Ireland represented by that picture over there was widely held to be a prerequisite for having any government at all, but we are now in the next three months, leaving, even leaving aside Brexit, in a situation where it will be, it will suit the preferences of the people of Northern Ireland that the Assembly is not restored uh, before the middle of October in order that same-sex marriage and abortion can be enacted uh, in accordance with the preferences of the people of Northern Ireland 
but against the preferences of the DUP, which holds a veto when the Assembly exists. All right, thank you. Thank you very much in, in, indeed for that. Who'd like to start on both Jennifer's question about health and performance and how you compare those, and Ian's about mm. the Northern Ireland paradox? Uh, I mean, on, on that, I think that's, thanks, it's really, really, really interesting and important question. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it speaks to the point I was making, which is explored in um, chapter 808 of the collection on whether devolution has, has created a, a policy laboratory, as we might call it. And the Institute's actually done some work on this um, in the past uh, with, with the Alliance for Useful Evidence, for example. And, and certainly, I think that's one thing we found is that um, I don't think it's by design or sort of, you know, deliberate attempt to obscure accountability. It's just that, uh, but for, for other sort of more contingent reasons, we've ended up in a, in a situation where, yeah, the different administrations um, collect data in different ways, they prioritize different um, outcome targets and so on, or, or just have different conceptions of what, you know, good performance in the public sector might look like. And therefore, there has been an erosion of uh, comparability of, of, of performance data. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it was, it was necessarily perfect before, but I think um, that does make it a lot more difficult to, 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 to realize the potential of, of devolution to, to drive up performance by, as I say, kind of evidence transfer and, and learning and so on. And I mean, in terms of what one might do to, to, to solve it, um, I don't think you said, you know, would it be for the Treasury or something? I mean, I think any attempts by the UK government to say, well, no, here's a system that everybody must abide by and report, you know, performance data against or something. I, I can't see that as being a solution because it would be, it would be, it would be resented and um, would, I think, rightly be seen as, as an imposition. I mean, I think if we're going to make progress on that kind of front, it would have to be through um, through intergovernmental agreement, and uh, you know, we know that intergovernmental relations have not been in a particularly good state um, and they you know the, to the extent that we have intergovernmental systems they they tend to be set up to try and resolve disputes and uh, and, and that kind of thing rather than to find better ways of, of working together um, and if we were to you know move to a some some situation where, where, where that kind of problem wouldn't be so serious I think we have to we rethink our systems for intergovernmental relations, and there are there are countries that um, do that kind of thing a lot a lot better. Actually, I think you know Australia has systems for comparative uh, sort of performance assessment across the the states and the, the, the states and the federal system. Um, so I think that's the kind of area where where one would need to look. Anyone else on yeah. the on this? Go on, well, on, on this particular issue, I mean, it is. Oh, which on the health? Yeah, well, health. on the broader issue of being able to make comparisons across the United Kingdom, and it is true that, um, in a sense, OECD statistics comparing the United Kingdom and, let us say, France, are actually easier than comparing anything inside the United Kingdom, and uh, so either the UK Statistics Authority doesn't really do money. So they do demography and they do uh, <coughs> elements of service provision, but even then only 
proxies. They do, they do infant mortality, but not the performance of the NHS. So there isn't really, apart from the Institute for Government, a UK-wide performance testing and measuring institution. The NAO, I suppose, but they don't. their writ doesn't run over lots of services in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland anymore. So, uh, so it's a matter of whether anybody collects the data and who has the authority potentially to do that. UK Statistics Authority, as the name suggests, is a UK Statistics Authority. So potentially, it could make these things better. The Treasury publishes the annual public expenditure statistical <coughs> analyses, which, again, is a UK-wide, gives you nations and regions data, uh, but that's nowhere near giving you the kind of precision of comparability that would allow us to learn from things going on in different parts of the UK. And then you're down to individual charitable organisations, House of Commons Library and other, manually collecting things. Bronwyn, I think yeah. this question's for you, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, um, we, do, we do some of that. We draw on all those other bodies. The Health Foundation, indeed, does... Um, Times uh, some of this, and it, it remains more difficult than it should. I mean, the quality of <coughs> official data is um, pretty awful in uh, a developed country, and I, uh, it's one a constant uh, theme of the Institute's work here, um, which we can continue. I, I just, just wanted to tease out the panel's views a bit more on uh, Ian's question. I mean, to put it a slightly different way, if in you know six months we're sitting here and, uh, and the direct rule has been reimposed, will we consider that a, a failure of devolution? You brought up the interesting point about why the, it might suit, or at least quite a few people in Northern Ireland for that to be the case, and obviously there's a Brexit-related reason that um, uh, if we have a no deal and the UK is trying to deal government to government with the Republic of Ireland, it can't do that through civil servants. Um, but anyway, all kinds of reasons. But you know, if there isn't a resumption of the government, what are we gonna be feeling about the success of the devolution project? <coughs> That's a political question I can't really comment Sorry. on, but yeah. uh, Ian does raise an yeah. important point. I mean, Northern Ireland is in sort of constitutional limbo because it's, mm. it neither has fully functioning devolution nor is mm. it formal uh, direct rule. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of somewhere uh, in between. Um, but there is actually a curious sort of consensus on Westminster uh, legislating. I mean, it's been accepted over the past couple of years that, that Westminster will handle budget legislation uh, and now we see uh, a sort of head of steam behind uh, uh, social legislation uh, as well but the DUP their line is that they want direct rule and of course these measures presumably would have happened under direct rule uh, too. Uh, Sinn Féin interestingly broadly accepts that the Westminster Parliament is the best means of, of delivering uh, these uh, and there is also a consensus in the House of Commons behind that so I'm not sure it would necessarily be in a different place. But an important observation is that we have amendments on the principle of, of legalising same-sex marriage and abortion in Northern Ireland, but no policy uh, as yet. Uh, a commitment to regulations, but nothing beyond that. Just one observation on, on health and education. It's become much more politicised. I remember a few years ago that the NHS in Wales was a regular feature of Prime Minister's questions in, in a way I don't remember it being 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and similarly, of course, the, the Scottish government, and I think the Welsh government too, has, has opted out of certain educational uh, measurements, and some have argued that's a response to unwelcome uh, headlines. So 
the stats and therefore the ability to compare mm. these, I think, has become much harder because it's become much uh, more politicized. Because the governments don't want to be held to account for mm. the things that the statistics will allow us to hold them to account for. I can put it in a more political way. Yes. Um, there's, there's a couple over here. All right, so let me take these two, and then I'm going to squeeze in the, try and <coughs> squeeze in the final two. Yep. Please. Yeah, I, I'm Joe Edgerton. I am the, I think, the only survivor of the Westminster Group, which in 1975-76 wrecked the Callaghan, uh, Conservative Group, that wrecked the Callaghan government's proposals for the Scotland and Wales Bill. And I, that time, and I, what we feared at that time is exactly what has actually come to pass. That is to say, you would get in Edinburgh a parliament that had perceived, in the, in the eyes of the people of Scotland, greater legitimacy and greater political authority, regardless of anything that the law might say that was passed in the House of Commons and House of Lords to set it up, regardless of that, you would get what has happened, which is you have now got a Scottish parliament that has perceived <coughs> greater trust, greater authority and greater legitimacy. What we didn't agree with was Tandyell's motorway, because we considered that the big danger was that the, the stresses would build up inside the structure, not that it would be a constant change, but anything that would start would probably would be irreversible, but that what would happen is stresses would build up to a point where the Scottish Parliament would say no to something and insist on going its own way, and the Westminster Parliament would have no practical means to enforce it. And we would therefore be back to the situation that prevailed in this country from 1603 to 1707, where the king theoretically, or queen theoretically ruled, but in practical terms, the Scottish Parliament was regularly capable of asserting itself. Now, it seems to me that that is the model that we have now got to. And that to say that Brexit is some sort of evolutionary thing seems to me a thoroughly dangerous approach. We have got exactly what the conservative opponents of the Carrigan motorway feared. That is to say, we're in a situation now where the Scottish Parliament could very well exert itself. All right, thank you for that. I'm sure there'll be a comment on that. Let me take that behind you. Thank you. Uh, one comment on the last exchange on education and, and health things, and then a question. Uh, I was told by senior education officials, I think when the, in England, when the PISA international uh, educational ratings came out about 2016 or 17, that the UK stroke English ministers asked first for the comparisons with Scotland and Wales before things like Finland and Singapore that <laughs> might be more aspirational uh, because obviously they, they were concerned about the local comparisons and the politics thereof. <coughs> Question, how far has, do you think the media has been a, a factor in how devolution has worked? All three of the devolved areas have quite distinct broadcast and written media. London, at least with an elected mayor, has somebody big and noisy enough to be noticed and approved of or disapproved of and therefore has a degree of accountability. To pick up Tony's point about East Midlands, is it feasible to have any sort of devolution in a place where people don't have a media reflecting local uh, government with a small g and therefore accountability? Interesting point. Would you like to say who you are for the record? Sorry, George Ferguson, former civil servant with regular involvement in Northern Ireland. Thank you very much. I'm actually going to, um, apologies for the questions, I'm going to take the other two in because I really want to get everyone's points, which are points and questions, uh, in. So uh, there's one at the back and there's one over here. Uh, uh, right, we've got a microphone there and I'll come to you now. 
Jeremy Skinner from the Greater London Authority. Uh, where, uh, David may be excused from answering this question, uh, where would the panel like to see devolution eventually end up and what would be the best first step along the road? Okay, great. And the last question we're going to have time for. Pippa Food Conay, UK Trust. Uh, as well as interest in sharing learning across the UK, we're interested in towns in public policy. And I'm really interested in what we can learn from devolution to date in terms of dealing with a democratic deficit in the areas that Tony talked about, whether it's East Midlands or whether it's Northeast areas that have been described as left behind, and areas which are very interested in having more power when it comes to determining what happens with the shared prosperity fund. Okay, great. So we've got four things that really do hang together. George's question on um, can you have um, uh, devolution to an area without, uh, without the media, uh, without media representation of, of that. And then Joe's uh, point about um, has the Scottish Parliament got legitimacy in the uh, destructive way that some, some feared. And Jeremy's about where is this going to end up and indeed Deborah's about the democratic deficit. Let's, let's, um, uh, let's start at this end and uh, end up with Tony uh, Akash. Sure. So, um, I suspect D David, I'm sure, is going to pick up on the, the question about, about, the, about the media, the importance of the media. I mean, I think, yeah, it is an, it is a, it is an important uh, factor, I think, if you're going to have um, devolved institutions that reflect, respond to... <coughs> the will and preferences of, 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 of the political community that they represent, then of course you need the, the, the you need uh, mediating organizations. You need, you need media to, um, to inform the public and to have create that, that feedback mechanism actually between what, what politicians are deciding and, and, and what, what people want. Um, Scotland obviously does have strong media. Wales, I don't think, does to, to the same extent. And, and there have, I think, been, that has been used as an argument for why, uh, for example, um, Welsh public service performance has, has often been uh, compared, you know, to, to, Eng to, to England um, because, and, and policy autonomy has maybe been constrained as a result because there's been a constant sort of pressure of, in terms of coverage of, of what's going on in, in England rather than a separate debate there. So I'm, I think that is an important aspect of it. I mean, on the other questions, um, I mean, your, your, your question about <laughs> your fears about where devolution would end up. I mean, I suppose the, 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 the response is, um, you know, what, what the alternative was. I mean, obviously in in the 1970s, when you were, you, were, you were engaged in the debate, it was it was far more contested, far more divisive, um, and there was a narrow majority in favour in Scotland in the 1979 referendum. Didn't happen because of the threshold requirements, etc. But by 97, um, all was changed utterly, and you had sort of 70, 75 percent nearly in favour. Akash, uh, forgive me, I'm going to. Sorry, yeah. Uh, but so, where, sure. where would you like? So to I suppose my point is simply that. Uh, yes, by that point, I don't see what what the alternative was, and had an incoming government in '97 not implemented uh, devolution, we would have been somewhere much probably more unhealthy. Uh, where should devolution end up? Lots of unfinished business in England. Tony's talked about that. 
fiscal devolution in its early stages, I'm sure that, that needs to go further and a greater sort of uh, clarity about the principles of how devolved government is funded. And yes, why do we have the Barnet formula if we retain it, for instance, um, at, at all? That, 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 that does seem to be without any clear uh, principle underlying it. Uh, just briefly on, on that point, uh, I remember speaking to Tamdale about this uh, shortly before he died, and, and he maintained that had Blair U-turned in 97 and not bothered with devolution, it would all have been fine. There might have been some fuss around the fringes, uh, a fundamentally unconvincing uh, argument, I think, uh, for the reasons uh, Akash mentions. Um, on the media, it depends what you're talking about. I, I mean, newspapers are now so weak uh, across the developed world that I, I'm not sure they're hugely important anymore. Uh, broadcasting, because of the Broadcasting Act 1990 remaining strong, uh, it has a strongly English regional element, both on, on the BBC uh, and commercial uh, television, so perhaps there's a basis uh, there. And crucially, in Scotland, the, the media was a, a consistent champion, uh, not broadcasters, but newspapers of, of the devolution project uh, in the run-up to 1999. Uh, much less influential now, uh, I, I would suggest. I can't say where I want devolution to go, but it will be interesting to see uh, where the related debate about federalism uh, goes. It's always been around, uh, mm. often quite vaguely defined beyond uh, the, the word itself, but there, there could be some movement, I think, from the, the Labour Party uh, on that and perhaps others. Great. Rachel and Tony, you have one minute each to sum so up your views on on the media question, I guess I was just thinking, I mean, I agree, I think having a strong media is important in terms of holding devolved institutions to account. Um, I think in some ways the fact that the media in the UK is still very, you know, London-centric, UK-centric, um, uh, so anyone watching the Six o'clock news until recently in Scotland would be seeing um, stories about the NHS in England mm -hmm. largely, and I think that probably has contributed to um, public confusion about who should be held accountable for a particular... Um, performance of public services. Um, on the sort of tipping point and the idea that there'll be a crack that the Scottish government will just refuse to, to implement a particular policy, I would actually sort of throw it back and say, what kind of thing would that be? Because I sort of find it hard to imagine what exactly it would be. They'd say, no, we're absolutely not doing that in terms of, of policy rather than it being a sort of uh, result of some future independence referendum potentially. Um, and I'm also not going to say where I think deviation should go. Okay, well, on the media front, when I was an adolescent, child and adolescent, I lived in North Wales, and um, there, Granada Television from Manchester had evolved something called Granada Land, and that's English-speaking people in Wales. We thought we were part of Granada Land, so that was a powerful uh, triumph for the London TV moguls who set up Granada Television. So I'd rather take your point. Uh, on, you know, um, the union and, you know, what all is one of the contributors to this book famously said we are where we are and the uh, way in which you know all our constitutional arrangements really function in the UK is by agreement and we all have to assent to what happens and if part of us or some of us no longer assent to the union being the union then it'll happen and so we have to sort of relaxed unionism it seems to me uh, looking ahead on the uh, Shared Prosperity Fund, awkwardly, it wasn't equally distributed around the United Kingdom. So the government will face the choice of deciding, do they try and replicate where it used to be spent, or 
produce some new purpose for it, which I think they will, and then, you know, how will the, what will the criteria be and do they run across the United Kingdom or are they purely, are the Scots, the Welsh and the Northern Ireland government allowed to do it themselves? All of that's still to be decided. Where should devolution end? Well, I will end. I am going to answer this one. I mean, I think there needs to be, though I'm generally against reorganisations of local government, I think in the end England's government has to be moved to the point that you could have combined authorities everywhere that would allow devolution to those areas, however led, and that would allow England, if Whitehall would uh, allow it some power over tax and spend, uh, taxation spending and public services to be devolved, would allow a much more balanced settlement within England that would to some degree match what's happened in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. But we are a light year away from that. Still, everything might change soon, so we'll find out. We will. We will. Um, thank you all. Um, enormously, I, I must say, I, I, I wondered, in, as we were putting together this collection, whether we were dealing with devolution at quite a sunny point in its fortunes, uh, getting all the political kind of plaudits for uh, real success, but uh, not having dealt yet as a, as a country with the strains that Brexit is bringing with the unfinished uh, financial questions and with an increasingly long record of, of elected governments and what they've, what they've done with it. And I wonder what we are going to be talking about in six or 12 months' time, but we won't have to wait very long because we will bring that to you. Thank you, uh, everyone, for coming to IFG land, as maybe I can call it. And thank you very <laughs> much indeed to the panel.